I'd like to mention that this episode deals with the experience of losing a child, which may be triggering. If you need to speak to someone, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. You like sit there and snuff on their hair or, and you can feel how much you love some, your child. And so when they die, unfortunately, all of that then manifests into guilt around what you weren't. This is Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. I'm Sky Manson, your host for this really special summer series of Life on the Land, where the Grazy Her team pick their favourite episodes so far and explain how the story touched or inspired them or made them think about something in a different way. G'day, I'm Em Herbert, and I'm the co-host of this podcast, Life on the Land, alongside Sky. I'm also lucky enough to write for the Grazy Her magazine. Each week, I speak to women across this big brown land of ours who eke out an existence on the land, or whose lives and life's work are directly entwined with the bush. It's excruciating to pick a favourite Life on the Land episode, as there have been so many excellent yarns. However, one that stands out for me is my chat with Olympia Yaga. I'd interviewed Olympia several times before about her extraordinary waste infrastructure business, GoTerra, but I'd never delved into Olympia's own personal story. It sent ripples throughout the Grazy Her community, with so many people reaching out to say they were as deeply touched by Olympia's magnificent eloquence, her loss, her rawness and vulnerability as I was. It made me think about grief, how inevitable it is, but also the flip side of loss, the searing love that made it possible. It also broadened my mind to Australia's waste crisis, the power of maggots, and the incredible minds on agricultural's front line, working with some genius solutions. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode again as much as I did. Yeah, like my family were wogs that owned the piggery and battery hen farm on Mugger Lane, which is this little place in on uh, still country type farms there in Canberra. Um, and so, it, you know, st- I loved going out to Nonna's and being out there, but it really started when I was at boarding school in Yass. I used to go, my girlfriend's mother owned a fine wool um property just outside of Yass and I'd go there on the weekends and yeah that was just the best life ever like I just that's all I wanted to do after that I was like this is it there is animals here and I'm outside and it's some when it you know I loved cold rainy days like working in cold rainy days and that just everything smells incredible and then you come inside and the house is warm and then you have like food with lots of butter on it. And I was like, what is this world? Like do more of all of this. Like, so yeah, that's where I fell in love on the Southern Tablelands, if you can imagine it. So I left year 12 
tell and my guidance counselor was like oh St. Clair's girls do not become farmers which was literally all the motivation I required to become try to become exactly that um and I moved to Cooma started my wool classing certificate and yeah kicked off from there that innate connection as a teenager it it is almost like something from a past life like it, it seems very rooted in your DNA yeah yeah, yeah, like it, it's hard to separate that it wasn't inherited because to me it feels like it's always been there. Um, and it was hard when I got out into the career field and people were like, where are you from? And I said Canberra and then it immediately dropped you a couple of rungs mm. and they were like, oh. and then you sort of, you you levelled down a, few, a little bit because you weren't from the country right yeah. if I'd just said Kumundra, I could have lived in town it wouldn't have mattered yeah but um you say Canberra and everyone's like oh okay <laughs> yeah, it's like oh come on <laughs> yeah interesting because you have that hurdle of you know perceived gender and then another yeah. hurdle of geography yeah mm. don't get it don't know that sort of thing yeah so you left school you know with the aim of of working in sheep but you were also pregnant when you left school. Isn't that right? Racking up the early wins on poor decisions. Was, yeah. Yeah. Look, look, I, um, I do everything at a hundred percent, even the terrible stuff. So definitely uh, graduated pregnant, which um, isn't an accolade I recommend to, well, pretty much anyone. Um, and I just refused to, let that be a reason that I didn't do what I wanted to do. But what it meant was that I was always sort of half-assing what I was trying to do, right? Like I was trying to shove this sort of complex challenge of being 18, 19, 20 and wanting to be on the land with a baby two-year-old and a deadbeat dad situation. <laughs> and, um, and it's sort of, they don't fit, you can't you know, those, those two things are just quite difficult. And so I ended up in Goulburn doing a lot of TAFE, you know, so I was like agribusiness and then I did a rural traineeship and I, you know, did a horse hunter, husbandry course and course after course after course. And then sort of these sort of weird jobs. So, you know, I worked for New South Wales Ag as a trainee and then a cattle fitter and like, but it always ended up not functioning because it, if when you're a mum and you don't have a good partner supporting you, when the kid's sick, you leave work, you have to. And when the kid can't go to daycare, then you don't go to work. And um, this is all happening in the 90s, the early 90s. And so maybe a little bit more progressive then, but uh, now, but it doesn't really matter. If you can't be reliable, then your mm. employer is less likely to want you around and, and will generally try to find ways for you to not be. And that's what kept happening. I think it, yeah. it's, it definitely speaks to your um, unbelievable hunger to be involved in agriculture, though, that you kept pursuing it despite all of these roadblocks. I just felt like that was, this was the only thing that I wanted to do. And so I had to just somehow force it. Um, and, and it didn't, go away so he he died um in 1996 he drowned 
and I was living out of town on a farm at the time and, you know, unregistered car, like driving into work and driving everywhere. And it's just, it was just shit time. And so of course moved back into town after he died. Um, he was two and a half and, and I couldn't stop. Like my, I remember my lecturers at uni um, were like, Oh, you know, take some time, uh, take some time off. And I'm like, Oh no, I have to come back. Like it's the only thing I've got left you know like I don't, I don't have anything else I want to do I was a bit useless but I was at least sitting in the room mm. yeah and I and so I just sort of got stuck in this odd place after he died um, because I followed my partner to Darwin because yeah I did, didn't want to be alone didn't have the courage to be alone um, and so now I'm even worse so you know the, the gap between you know Darwin is surrounded by agriculture but agriculture to, to work on is, you know, from, you know, I was more animal than crop. And so, you know, there were no farms close by in Darwin. Like you've got to travel a fair distance to get out to those big stations. And so I couldn't find the work that I wanted to do. So again, I'm like, what's close enough. And so like ended up joining the Royal show committee as a counselor and like doing the rural the rural young rural achiever thing and like all these really random things ran the like the animal the petting zoo for the show like just dumb stuff to just try and still be connected to that world and that space even though I wasn't actually able to do work on on farms anymore is a really crap time how how old were you when you lost Jeremy 20 uh he died on the 22nd of September and I turned 21 on the 15th of October. <laughs> yeah. Too, too young. Too young to be, yeah, too young to manage any of it. Him coming, him going, the stuff in between. And, yeah, yeah, it's an incredible, yeah, it's just incredible and difficult because of all the parts that come with losing, well, you you have a child and you assume all of the responsibility of loving them and wanting them, and that's a huge burden. Like any new mum knows, like you almost you almost drown in all of it, right? So you're like, I didn't think I could love anything this much, and now I'm super conscious of whether or not it's breathing all the time. And I'm exhausted by the fact that I now wake up at two in the morning and need to make sure that that's true. And, you know, who knew that you could just like, well, maybe horse girls know a little bit, but that you could breathe something in and feel it in yourself, right? Like you like sit there and snuff on their hair or however, and um, and you can feel how much you love some your child. And so when they die unfortunately all of that then manifests into guilt around what you weren't weren't there to stop him from drowning weren't there to make it okay yeah so you sort of i think what can be difficult when you're young and you <clears throat> sorry and you're working through that is that um, you don't actually know who you are, so there's nothing, you know, who who has a strong sense of self when you're 20. 
I don't know if I even figured it out before I was 30 and probably only because I'd like ran into the wall of life more times than sense from bad decisions. And then suddenly you're like, okay, I do not like men that treat me this way. No shit. Like, yeah, like it's like you do these dumb things over and over again before you get there. Um, and so when such trauma happens of that kind at that age, like super difficult to uh, draw on anything. You know, your friends are not even thinking about children. So like they, they aren't as responsive because to them, this is just too much to deal with in the scheme of like partying and whatever. And, and then they're, but they're still your friends. So they're conscious of, not wanting to call you up two weeks later and going, so beers at the Australian tonight, you know, like so you sort of end up a little bit alone and not alone. And then also trying to sort through something so deeply painful without any of the resources of self-awareness or, you know, who you are or what you're going to do or, you know, careers are, all just still formative like I don't even have that right so yeah it's a, it was it was the reason why I decided to move to the US because I was like I'm just gonna reinvent this whole damn thing do you know what I mean like I could have come back to the southern tablelands and started rouseabouting or whatever but it all just felt too connected and the same um and so I was like forward Go north and just sort of keep going north until you stop. And so um, I went to the US on a one of those equine traineeship programs, which is just basically slave labour for horse trainers in the US, of which I'm grateful, and tried to start over as best I could, which it worked to a degree because I was worked like an absolute dog and am grateful for it. So the first place I landed at, we started, it was summer in Texas, which is boiling hot and cattle don't move in the heat. So I was working from one until three every day. Sundays were a half day. We only worked from one until eight. A generous. <laughs> yes. But you can't think too much when you work hard. So. Olympia, it's just unbearable. I just am so sorry. Yeah, it's so shit. Yeah. But, yeah, it happens to more parents than we care to admit, I think, sometimes. And you can't wrap them in cotton wool. The irony is my other two children have done everything they can to try and, you know, be dangerous and whatever. My son's now into parkour and launches himself off 20-storey buildings and does handstands on top of rooftops. And somehow he's 19 and moving around just fine. Um, and so that's just kind of the way things work, isn't it? We do circle around these hard topics and we, are, um, you know, we flinch away from other people's grief because it's terrifying and it's huge and it's scary. Um, and your son's name is Jeremy and, and he is part of you and he's part of your story. You have yeah. some extraordinary, you are so brave with how you have taken somehow these lessons from from your grief and and your trauma you know how do you think that that shapes us as people i think you're a better person um at supporting others when you've managed to move through 
something traumatic. I think people who've dealt with trauma have this different capacity to support each other. And, and so, you know, you can, I can normally tell people who have had something not great happen because of the way that they interact with my story. Um, you know, what's the Shakespeare quote? Would you have a loss such as mine? I would give more comfort than you do. So if you knew what it was like, then I would be a better comfort to you than, than, um, than you are to me. And I think that's a gift in the end, if you think about where I ended up, because not too many years after Jeremy died, I was connected to the US military to my husband and a war was going on and we were losing lots of friends at a time, you know, eight to nine friends every summer. Um, and so, yeah, how lucky that I was super ready to go through some more trauma um, and was able to deal with it in a different way because it wasn't close in that. Yeah. So for me, that's, if that's the worst, then I can deal with anything up of that. And so I was grateful in the end that I had that experience to draw on because I think I was able to be more useful to my friends. Mm. So it's a I say that it's a privilege and I think sometimes that comes out the wrong way. I do not wish that it had happened, but I cannot prevent it, that from being true, right? Like it, I can wish away a lot of things, but I think there's something special happens when you, when you stop wanting grief to stop and you experience the same way that you experienced the love that made you sad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so like, there's like if, if it always has felt odd to me that, uh, and I say this to my grandmother all the time because she's like, when I die, you will not cry. And I said, you do not get to choose how I will mourn you. I'm so sorry, old lady, but you will be gone, and so and your grip on my decision making will be released. And I shall effing blind over your coffin like a woman on a wall. And she gets very cross because she's, you know, Catholic wog and we do not display ourselves erratically. Um, but if you think about it, the irony of our culture is that grief and loss is the last emotion of a relationship that matters. Mm. And we don't want a single bar of it. And it's like how, yeah, I think that's, sort of an interesting perspective on changing that attitude, right? Because when I say that to my grand, I'm like, this is the last thing I'm going to feel. This is, this, is, this is the last experience we will have together in this relationship. And so I'm going to, like, enjoy it, mm. which will mean that I will cry a lot and I will be sad and I'm going to let those things be true because after the grief passes, the rest is all just memory. Mm. And that's the love bit. Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, I think, I think it's really interesting to just try and reframe it. I don't, I don't want to get to, I don't think you get to a point where you enjoy grief or you're like, oh, I'm feeling better about this. But it's more that instead of going, you'll be right, mm. right, or it'll be okay, 
like, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. Like, I'm sure it will be. But until then, I'm just going to wade through a large volume of sugary carbs and I'm probably going to lie still in a dark room for a disproportionate amount of time and I'm not going to apologise for that. Thanks. Because I feel shit and sad and I, I want you to give me some diffidence to that and say mm. that that's how much more chocolate can I get you? Um, but instead we're kind of, there's this cutoff period around grief, I think of about, it's like three months and then by the six month mark, if you're still kind of not doing okay, everyone kind of is like, ooh, Denise never really recovered. And then like, we just don't really like try not to walk down the same aisle in the shops anymore. We're like, what? She might start talking about that thing. And, you know, so it's like, I just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think we've got to get, do we, we need to do better at that maybe. How do we turn towards that when it's so difficult? Is it, is it that other people's pain is difficult to bear? Is it that it makes our pain really obvious to ourselves? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's because we feel guilty that it wasn't us. Mm, that's something I was, yeah, I think that's something I reflected on a lot in the Marine Corps because it was something that I felt really sharply. You would go through the process, so they'd call me and they say, you know, X, Y and Z has died, the families have been notified. Um, you know, they, and I was the family readiness advisor. So I would, I sometimes found out before the command officially let everyone know. And sometimes it didn't, um, but all you ever thought was don't let it be me. Mm. And as soon as you found out, it wouldn't matter how close you were to that family. Your first thought was relief. Mm. And I think that's embarrassing to admit out loud. And, yes. and then in, interacting with those people who are experiencing something horrific that you are very glad didn't happen to you. It's so hard to sit in their world because after a while you're like, oh, can we watch something fun or you're going to cry some more? Like what do you do with somebody who's just unable to think about anything else and wants to wax lyrical about dumb stuff. And, you know, like it, it's, it's exhausting to support people going through grief. Mm. And I just think if we did it with more compassion, you can use that objectiveness to go, great, I'm going to do three hours and I'm going to get some other people and they're going to do three hours and we'll mm. make sure there's a train. And do you know what I mean? Like Share just the treat it yeah, it's a project management thing, you know, <laughs> rather than a, it's like trying to endure, um, yeah, and be more engaged in a way that's more productive. So don't, don't ask to sit there and talk to them. Just turn up and mow their lawn. Mm. Go and get them something from the shops. And if they're not home, you don't need to be there for them to see that you loved them. Go mm. away. <laughs> It's like when people come to see a new baby, they're like, I bought you this thing that I made for you for your new baby. And then they're like, and you go, thanks. And then they try to come in and you're like, I'm, st I'm still wearing a nappy. Could you go away? Because I don't want to entertain. Thanks for the casserole. Like, do you know what I mean? Like dump and run. Just let that be all right. <laughs> 
you end up being a better friend, right? Because everyone's like, thanks so much. I really didn't want to talk. But the fact that you just came by and, and would leave me a flower on my doorstep or a little note, yeah. like, and the, I knew that I didn't have to respond and that you were still going to love me at the end. Like, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, That's the unconditional but, aspect. Yeah. We all want the feedback. We're like, I made you a casserole. <gasps> you shouldn't have. Oh my God. Thank you so much. How is the kids? How's Larry? Like we, yeah, it's like, Oh, I don't have energy for you. So yeah. Yeah. Just put it on my doorstep. Yeah. Dump and run. Dump yeah. and run. Better for everyone. <laughs> you may not get your dish back. But in that case. <laughs> Write your name on it, love. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a different podcast for a different day. Those 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 people need to be discussed at length. <laughs> it seems um, like quite a, an extraordinary thing having interviewed you a couple of times and you're a save the world kind of gal. How did yeah. you end up in the US military? <laughs> well, I married American, an American woman. I know, but I'm like how, how bizarre is that? <laughs> I know. And, and it was... Anyone that knows Darwin knows that you do not marry US Marines. You enjoy them for short periods of time. They're like a buffet. You know, there's a lot. Full of salmonella. To, there's so much to eat, but the after effects are generally poor, right? There's lots of regret the next day where you're just like, why, why did I do that? And so um, when I moved to America, I was like, well, I'm in Texas. There are no Marines here and that will be fine. And I didn't because I'm Australian and didn't really understand the war, cu- war culture of, of America. Um, so, you know, if you put on, a, if you walk past a uniform in the US, you are a God. You are put in a mythical place on a mythical pedestal and people thank you for your service and you get 10% off at Arby's. And so um, I, I was in North Carolina, I moved to North Carolina and, I was, you know, my girlfriend's like, you, you know, it's been a while, Olympia, since you've had a male friend. And I'm like, yes, there's a reason and that's okay. She's like, let's go to Jacksonville. It'll be fun. And, and I'm like, okay. And Jacksonville is like 60,000 Marines, oh. 50, 50% of whom are married and the other 30,000 are not there's not much else to do there. Some Baptist churches and laundromats and um, chicken wing bars. And that's about it. And so, you know, I went to this very gross bar called the Tar Heel and we started dancing and my girlfriend sees him standing at the bar and she was like, Oh, bet you can't get him to dance with you. And I'm not a graceful person known for my flirting. I'm quite... Um, really? Yeah. No, I'm clumsy and loud and get embarrassed easily. So um, there's a really funny meme that describes me and it's a bird screaming at another bird and the caption is, do you like plants? And that's like pretty much me trying to attract a mate. Like I'm like, ah, hi. Um. Yeah, so I went up and bought him a drink and didn't even talk to him and left the drink on the bar and walked away. And he thought that was the coolest, most slow. That is, I did it because I was embarrassed and I didn't know what to say. Like, I was like, oh, now I've bought it. What do I say? And so I just left it. You just thought you were being super smooth. He thought I was the slickest thing on the planet. And so then we started dancing and he's so lovely. 
Like he's just the most loveliest thing. But um, he was, yeah, he went to the invasion in 2003 and then he did six back-to-back combat deployments for the next 12 years. In Afghanistan. Iraq and Afghanistan, yeah. So four to Iraq in the end and two to Afghanistan. And somehow Um, amongst that time you had two children and were involved in the military. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, again, that was sort of like there was so much saving of world things that could be done. So I was like, wee, look at all the things. So I tried to continue horse training. Um, I was driving an hour and a half to work every day. Um, But uh, doing that with a small child and a deployed husband was just, again, where I was back in the same place, right? So trying to shove square peg, round hole, and couldn't get it to go. And I was devastated um, and ended up... um, just sort of coming back to work in town and worked for a tanning salon. I did all sorts of dumb jobs that now I look back and go, thank God I've done those because that, you know, they taught me the tanning salon training was like managing that tanning salon was the best sales training I've ever had in my life. And I can sell the knees off anything. Um, my, my redneck, but when I was still training horses, he, he, um, he said to me, he's like, you can sell anything. So we're at this grocery store, and called the Piggly Wiggly. And there was this little black and white border collie, something puppy in the back of someone's truck and they were selling it for 50 bucks. He said, he said, I reckon you could buy that doll for $50 and sell it for a thousand. I said, I bet I could. He goes, I bet you $50. I said, all right. So he bought the dog and it was not a lot of border collie in that dog, enough to make it fluffy. but a special. <laughs> she was, she was rough. So I'm like, all right. So I get the dog and we worked around pen back then. And so um, it was pretty easy to move cows around and can't get lost. And um, anyway, about six months of age, I've got this dog, Sprite, his name was, and, um, and he could stop, go left and right, come, come up, walk backwards and come when he was called. And I sold him for 1100 bucks as a working dog. And my boss was off. He was just like, so we were at the house having lunch. And he said, who is coming up the road? And I said, oh, that's a man to have a look at the dog. He goes, no, you did not. He said, you ain't selling that damn piggly wiggly dog out of my yard. And I'm like, yeah, I am. Let's do it. He's like, God damn it, girl. And so this guy comes in. We work. And, yeah, I said to the bike, I said, he's got no eye, no natural talent. I said, but if you tell him to go left, he goes left. If you tell him to go right, he goes right. If you tell him to come when he's called, he'll come when he's called. And we did, we worked some cows with him just that way, left, right, left, right. Like, goes, love him. So he bargained me down from 1500 to 1100 And then you got your 50 bucks from the bloke. And then I gave him 50 bucks to my boss. I said, there you go. He goes, I want more than that. And he said, it wasn't for me. You wouldn't have made so much money. I said, no, mate, the bet was for $50. Next time you'll have more faith in me. So he, I still, I call him when I'm on the road because we drove a lot together to different horse shows. And uh, I called him the other day because I was driving to Sydney. And he said, he said, it's this damn Australian calling me when I'm in the middle of a cotton field trying to do work. And I'm like, I said, Oh, calling about a dog. He goes, I ain't got no damn dogs here for you to sell. (laughs) 
It's been like 20 years. <laughs> oh my God. I love that story. And you were so good at the accent. It's so funny. I love that. Act. The Southern, the, the Southern North Carolina accent is, is the best of all of the Southern accents. Got the mighty nose. Yeah, they are so good. <laughs> well, those sales skills certainly came in handy later down the track. Cause you, when you came back, so you came back to Australia basically cause you missed home. Is that, why you and Eric and the two kids? Yeah. So when, when he asked me to, I was like, I am never getting married again. This is, this is a really dumb thing to do. And I don't need to be married to be with someone I like. Um, and then it was like, you don't have health insurance unless you get married and all these other, and Eric was uh, mad romantic. Like he's, his favorite book is like love actually of movies. Love actually. So he's like this huge romantic and he's like, let's get married. So when I, when, when he asked, I was like, only if we go home like i cannot once you're done here i we we go back to australia and he was like yeah deal so in 2010 he was diagnosed with ptsd just before his next deployment and um he's like i can't keep going so we had four more years oh two more years left on that four-year contract and so um we were like okay we'll finish it up he deployed again and, um, and we sort of, we did two more deployments and then we finished up. So, yeah. So you came home. Back home. Yeah. Back to Canberra. Cause you know, if all of Australia, when you move home, where are you going to go? The Bella. Once a Canberra girl, always a Canberra girl. Look, it's so funny. Canberra gets such a bad rap because politicians live there and everyone wants to believe that that's the heart of what that city is, but it's like, I don't know. Canberra's like the most beautiful capital city in the world. And it's the only Australian city with a 360 degree view of agriculture. Mm. And, and it's beautiful. So, yeah. And at least I knew, you know, my way around and it was sort of soft landing spot, I guess. We'll be back in just a moment, but first a message from our sponsor. Today's episode of Life in the Land is brought to you by small but big in personality, bush-based cafe, fashion and gift retail store located in the far northwest New South Wales town of Walgett. Established in 2014 in the face of one of the longest and severest droughts regional Australia has seen, Katie Murray is wife to Farmer Jay and mother of four. Stone's Throw is jammed, packed, full of unique gifts, homewares and more recently a fashion line with everything in store also online it's an easy place to shop from the comfort of your home offering dispatch within 24 hours katie also specializes in corporate orders for those looking for something special for their employees and or clients this christmas the majority of gift boxes are proudly and exclusively australian made custom designed boxes are also available to suit any budget Despite the remoteness of her location, Katie operates at a highly professional level with the bonus of also being easily contactable and flexible with order requirements. For the next 30 days, Stone's Throw is offering a 10% discount to listeners. Just enter Life in the Land at checkout. Head to www.stonesthrowonline.com.au for all your online retail experiences or contact Katie on 026828. 3359 for corporate orders. 
How did you get into insect farming from there? I mean, it's not really something that you're like, I'm going to go to Canberra and become a maggot farmer. <laughs> we were supposed to come to Canberra, buy a farm, go out onto the farm, you know, do the farm thing. Um, and I just didn't understand how much the Australian finance landscape had changed for agriculture. I'd been gone for you know, 14 years at the time. And so, and Eric had never been in Australia. So we had the credit rating of, you know, an eight-year-old <laughs> and um, and didn't, yeah, couldn't get the, didn't have enough equity to buy an actual working farm, right? Which is just an insane amount of money because we had no mortgages in Australia. We had nothing. And so I started trying to find other ways to make small acreage farming successful. <laughs> the reality is that, you know, making even large-scale farms um, profitable in a meaningful way can be quite difficult if you don't already own the property, um, let alone, you know, 20 acres or something as a market garden. Um, and there was no way to get those financials to add up without someone working off farm. And at, at that point, what's the point? Like, are you actually, is, is this a, a business or a lifestyle? And, and we had to make a decision about whether we wanted the lifestyle of living on a farm or the business of living on a farm. And so I was looking at ways to um, create feed that could, because that was where it kept getting stuck was just the price of feed. Mm. And so can I make this insect protein that could be the feed to make the business profitable was sort of the premise of why I started it turns and you, out and you started that up. just with catching a few insects in your backyard, wasn't it? It wasn't yeah, some yeah. grand scale thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I look at some of my peers who've done like massive things and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a different way of approaching it. I just sort of use stuff from Bunnings and the recycle shed at the tip tried. So, um, yeah, we got making maggots lay their eggs in, in a place is actually really, really hard. I could <laughs> I just couldn't imagine like how we were actually going to do this whole other farming system and then farm. Do you know, like at this mm. point now you're sort of getting in a weird space. So I decided that like we were probably another two years away from being able to have enough equity to buy like sort of the hobby farm. I was like, well, I can just play around with this idea until then. And so once I got the insects to actually complete a life cycle, uh, then I was like, okay, well, yeah, we, we can't build a farm on this premise. Like this is a whole thing on its own. Um, and it's sort of got legs, pardon the pun, about the second year mark. And so it was like, oh, this is actually a thing. Like this actually works the idea of the modular system had had really cemented itself and I could really, the more I started looking at it as a business instead of a side hustle to make feed, mm. um, I realised I was like, oh, this is actually really, really interesting and really meaningful and could be something that actually changes the game. But just to back yeah. up, you know, what, what does GoTerra do in a nutshell to the average layman? <laughs> before we start talking about vertical farming and modular systems can we just talk about what you actually do (laughs) 
Reasonable, reasonable. So GoTerra is a waste management infrastructure company. We build and manufacture and design waste management, autonomous waste management systems that basically utilise insects to consume food waste. So they're big industrial maggot robots that um, house and manage insects and then pump food waste into those insects so that they can grow the insects eat over 12 days and at the end of 12 days we evacuate the insects and you've got um three three things left over you've got any contamination that was in the waste so usually fruit stickers and bread tires and all the other stuff then you've got the insects who are fat and full of protein and you've got the frass which is the manure of the insects which is a pretty decent soil conditioner so we make money by fee-for-service waste management on the front end, so per tonne cost of managing waste. And then so that's we places sell... like Woolies who, you know, use the insects to get rid of food waste. Correct. Yeah, so Woolies pays us to manage their waste in Canberra. Um, same with hospitals, hotels, office buildings, schools. Um, we do 400 households, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we sell the frass and the protein on to suppliers so some of those that protein is suited for livestock feed for poultry and aquaculture and pets some of it based on what it's eaten isn't suited for livestock feed because it's gone it's eaten waste that's likely to have other contamination so usually from households the contamination Mm. um, rat poison or chemicals or nappies and things like that um and so we've been exploring a bunch of other stuff to do with that so you know plastic bags and cosmetics and biofuels and a bunch of other cool stuff Mm. and these units can they can be distributed right so like if you think about regional and rural communities um one of the biggest reasons why you know they're not 70 different types of recycling bins out in yas or wagga is because those constituents have to pay the rates for those services Mm. and the infrastructure to deliver those services is expensive. Well, this gives regional communities a piece of infrastructure that can deliver a service for a fraction of what a large system would generally require. And they can grow that system based on need. So, you know, for example, in the cropping or fruit picking type regions, those councils could, if they wanted to, increase the value, the volume capability by adding another unit during harvest so that that waste could be processed in that community um, without costing the producer anything. Same for morts from chicken, uh, chicken production um, and things like that. So, you know, trying to create this adaptable piece of infrastructure that has application not just in metro, but wherever people need waste managed, and then decentralising the production of protein a little bit, where mm. you know, it's a it's a bit of a lie, a bit of a myth that insect protein is going to um, impact the livestock feed industry in a way that like removes soy. Right, which is or Ishmael, for example, which were two of the sort of claims that had been thrown around. But what I envisage is something a bit more meaningful where um, you could grow protein in a region. Um, someone from that region could start a business selling 
you know, creating dog food using the local rendering plant, or they could create a dog treat specifically from that region, or they could create, um, you know, a backyard poultry blend or, do you know what I mean? Like you mm, it's provenance based. That's right. And, and it's in regional industry capability for supply chain offtake in this region. I just think that's a really powerful and exciting opportunity to distribute. It's so powerful. It's just so, it'll be so interesting to see the PR palatability of provincial maggots. (laughs) (laughs) It's so, people have stopped caring about some of this stuff though a little bit, right? Like I, we've not had a, oh, I don't want maggots in my basement um, piece for for forever. Everyone's just Oh, this is so exciting. Yeah, you it know, is. Because, yeah, it's a bit of a lie that the city isn't caring about their food or where it comes from anymore, I think. And, and if anything, they're just dying for more education about how to make better choices. Yeah. So there's this really unique opportunity to move into that space for all of that and, and to have better conversations about how things are produced and why and where and what matters. Yeah. Um, but people have stopped caring about the maggot side. And the circular nature of it, which I think is just so exciting in that you take the food waste, which is just going to be producing carbon emissions, and then you feed it to insects who then are used for livestock feed. And just, there's just, it's so poetic. It's so organic and lovely, which I think people will just love. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, I, I, I think so. Like we know that people from Canberra like love being able to buy the protein for their chickens and know that it came from the Woolworths mm. and from hospitals of their town. Like that, mm. that means something to people. And mm. um, it sounds a bit kitschy and sort of bespoke, but um, there's infinite opportunity to scale that capability across regions. And, um, and that was the whole point of making these units the way we did is it's like make it so that they can go to where the waste is instead of this ongoing model of trying to bring the waste to this yeah. big place. The, um, there's, some of the stats are pretty staggering around um, Australians throwing out 20% of the food that they buy. What are some of the other stats around the emissions and, and what you're hoping to help change the, the conversation? Yeah, so um, 1,700 ton, uh, kilos of CO2 emissions are created every time a tonne of food waste goes to landfill. Um, only 35 CO2 equivalent kilos of emissions are created if that goes through insect farming. Mm-hmm. Um, you have um, the protein, our protein, because we eat really low value stuff, our protein renders out about 55% protein. Um, the oil is almost a direct comparable to palm oil. Whoa. So, yeah, super exciting, right? So, you know, we think past like putting it into, you know, feeding it to pigs, like let's get palm oil out of our creams and our shampoos. And, you know, and I remember one of my neighbours was like, I don't know if women are going to want to put uh, maggot oil on their face. I'm like, they put cow botulism in their face, mate. I think we'll be okay. (laughs) Hello, there's a new cream made out of snail jizz. I'm pretty sure we can use a bit of maggot juice. It's like, hey, Denise, this makes you look younger. Six litres. And I need six litres. <laughs> it's like, do you want to know what it is? No, I'm not concerned. Like, 
prosecuting the ingredients on frigging youthfulness. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely not. There is zero discrimination if it's going to take away my crow's feet. <laughs> so how much, um, how much waste is, is Goterra uh, going through a week? Uh, it's coming on 60 tonnes uh, plus now. Got, yeah, about, yeah, just over. It's, it's, yeah, getting up there. And that's just at one plant. So we've got Barangaroo in Sydney and then we've also got a new facility down in Albury. So, yeah, it's getting, it's getting bigger each, each time I turn around. I now have experienced new staff members coming on board and I didn't know who they were. That's cool. Yeah, that's when you know you've really- made it. Well, and, it, and in true Olympia fashion, I've flounced into the office at 90 miles an hour. The, the staff make fun of me because I listen to really loud music in my car and um, generally very aggressive rap was my favourite because I just like the thumping. It, like you can't think. It's just like it takes away everything. So it's like when I drive in and Pete, one of our electricians, he's always he's like, I didn't hear you turn up. <laughs> Pete also has two cochlear implants. <laughs> but he does now. <laughs> it has been like a bonkers journey, though, for you in terms of this almost meteoric rise. Though I say that tongue in cheek because Samantha Wills, you know, when she was said, oh, you're an overnight success, she says, oh, yes, it took me 12 years to become an overnight success. And it's, it has been the same for, for Goterra and for yourself, obviously. But you have raised more than $10 million in venture capitalist funding throughout your journey. I mean, what was that like um, navigating the startup world and talking from a founder's point of view to try and raise money from very serious Silicon Valley types? What was that experience like for you? Yeah, it's it's super different world. Um, and I, I found it a bit difficult because I didn't um, understand the language. They've got a different language, different expectation of how to speak about things. Um, you know, the words you say to your investor aren't necessarily the same conversations you'd have with your, your client. Um, and that's not around deception. That's just around how you convey different messages, right? So you're selling the story of what could be mm. to your investors and you're selling the story of what you are to your client, particularly agricultural clients. Like nobody from farming wants to sit and marinate in your dreaming session. Like it's like, could you tell me what you can do for me today? That would be handy. Mm. Um, sort the rest of it out and then come see me once you've got there. Cause that sounds great, but also I don't have time. Yeah. And so um, getting that was difficult. And, and I think, you know, cause I didn't go through an accelerator or any of the other programs to sort of learn those things. I had to kind of figure it out the hard way. There's some really embarrassing videos of early Olympia presentations that are just really bad and I can't look at them. And so when new people see us and they're like, oh, I watched that thing from Rabobank, I'm like, hmm. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Glad they've still got it up. <laughs> you know, it's like, pull it down. Can I just let it go? So, um, but I was just really lucky that, it, uh, yeah, like people will help you even 
if I need to tell you what you aren't getting right. And, and that's sort of been an adage that I've been fortunate enough to learn, right? And so if you can just sort of acknowledge that you don't know what the hell you're doing, then you're fine. That's what's made it easier for me is just to be like, I don't know how this is supposed to sound, so can you explain it to me? And I had really incredible advisors in the beginning with Sarah Nollett and Matthew Pryor, um, who, you know, two more amazing systems thinkers and futurists when it comes to ag, you couldn't hope to find. And, um, yeah, just I, I would ask everyone, I'd be like, I remember I went to a stock feed manufacturer's council meeting three hours or something from Canberra. And I would have like back then I went to a chook raffle. Hey, do you want to know about doTERRA? Like in the toilets, like do you want more toilet paper? Can I tell you about my maggot? And so um, I was like, <laughs> anyone, if you stood still long enough, I was like, anyway, so I've got a maggot farm. <laughs> and then I did this little prezzo for the council uh, guys and everyone was, and then I was like, so what's wrong with this idea? And everyone's like, what? I'm like, yeah, why won't it work? Like, what's the problem? Why won't, you know, is, what are the things that I have to think about? Like, what am I missing? And so I got like 30 minutes of like a room full of men telling me, you know, all the things that they've been thinking about insect protein that, cause they're, you know, they're seeing it, different people are asking for it or telling them that they're going to have it. And, and they, these really smart, you know, people who know their industry really well, just telling me what what they're hearing and what they're thinking. And some of it was a bit brutal, but it was kind of beautiful in a way where mm. it's like, yeah, one, I remember one bloke yelled out and goes, you need to get your bloody prices down. And it's like, yeah, great, thanks. Yeah, like it was just, and it's just sort of this wonderful moment because a lot of them stay in touch and, and continue to ask or, you know, I'll find out through some other random connection that, you know, in a conversation with this person who met me three or four years ago, um, they were told about me. And and because there's a transactional thing that happens when you do that. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't do it because the investors kind of want you to, well, you feel like the investors want you to, to know everything and that if you have questions or you don't know something that to admit that would be maybe potentially a bit of a death knell you're not encouraged. You don't feel like you're encouraged to sort of say, Oh, I don't know what the answer to that is. Or I have to ask, even though we're told, Oh, call the customers and ask them what they want. The framing is always not tell me what you don't like about my product. It's always like, if you could have the perfect thing, what would it be? And then you try and shove your product into that statement. So yeah, I kind of, I think I was lucky in a way that I didn't really have, I was older. I had a little bit different journey. Um, and so I was sort of able to sort of like weeble wobble my way through <laughs> this process. Yeah. Which isn't to say I didn't try hard or anything like that, but I think it, it's just not a conventional, it's not a conventional conversation around how did Olympia get here? Yeah. I think, yeah, it doesn't, it, Forbes is not writing that story in the top 10 ways to become a finance entrepreneur. It's not turn up to back of nowhere so-and-so for stakeholder engagement at local pub. Learn sales pitch at tanning salon. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It probably does give you such a thick skin, though, which is so helpful. And, and you do have that lovely quote by Mars Davis 
that you do return to often, don't you? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's one of those ones where it's like, um, I, I love that quote, um, you know, mostly because I can hear him saying it. And I, I choose that quote every year to lean on. And, and that was last year that I, I did that one, which was, um, you know, it took me years to learn to sing like myself that just sort of like really resonated with me because it's like, yeah, like when you first start a company, it's not going to be what it is when you finally get it together. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, the Amazon today with all its slick messaging and super cool branding and no matter when you get your box, it looks like it came from Amazon. That didn't happen when he first had it in his um, bathroom no. or garage or wherever he was. It took them years to get there. Yeah, it was a really, really useful. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just really wanted to know where, where you're heading and and what your yeah, yeah. next five years are, what they're going to look like. We're going to put maggot robots everywhere, and manage a whole bunch of waste and um, create infrastructure capabilities in regions that currently don't have that capability, and um, create a bunch of jobs for young people who want to participate in ag and care about climate change and want to have jobs with purpose. And um, we're going to just do some major heavy lifting to try and save the world. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. So just a small mission statement. No biggie. Why not? More maggots, more money. That's what we're going to do. Going global. Oh yeah, we're going global. And go back and get some more American accent time. <laughs> That's so exciting. How much waste will you be taking on? So we, we're looking, we want to be doing 100,000 tonnes in the next five years, a year. A year. Yeah. Waste. Yeah. yeah. Huge. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Let's do it. Oh, you're incredible. I just am in awe of you. So thank you so much for your time. I know that I've chewed your ear off for nearly an hour and a half. <laughs> it, was, it was really lovely to spend some time talking about real things and Um, Thanks for having me. What a huge year of wonderful stories we've had. A very special thank you to you for coming along the ride and supporting the Grazy Her team. We're a band of multitasking women spread across the country and it's quite a thing to be part of something bigger than ourselves, like the Grazy Her community. The new year promises many new stories from women in remote, rural and regional Australia, and we can't wait to bring them to you. I hope you have a divine summer surrounded by friends and family. I'm thinking of those who find Christmas a hard time. I hope there's some love and lightness for you too. It's been a big two years of uncertainty and hopefully the holidays hold some time for you to rest and recharge. If you're looking to treat yourself, the summer edition of the magazine is still available and you can subscribe for 2022 online at grazyher.com.au. If you subscribe for two or three years, we'll send you a Grazy Her and RB Sellers diary, perfect to help you organise the next big 12 months. See you here next week for another special Summer Life on the Land story. Until next time, keep well. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by Manson and Company.